everyone wants to get more sleep, and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there, noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do, but you can immediately transform your sleep with Bowl & Branch. We have Bowl & Branch sheets in our house. They're in white. They are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash. And the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Motion and I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They are completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl & Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. That promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, for 15%, off your order. Hey everyone, it's Moshe Wanunu and welcome to another Mo News Conversation. We got news this week on that ongoing Theranos saga. Sonny Balwani, the former business partner and romantic interest of Elizabeth Holmes, was found guilty of multiple counts of wire fraud for misleading investors about the financial health of that now defunct healthcare startup, Theranos. That now means that both Balwani and Holmes were convicted and faced sentencing later this year. So I wanted to share a recent conversation I had with Rebecca Jarvis, the creator of the podcast, The Dropout, investigating what happened at Theranos. I really love the podcast. The investigation that Jarvis and her team did was pretty incredible. And of course, it's now been turned into a drama on Hulu starring Amanda Seyfried. Rebecca is an Emmy award-winning journalist who spent years diving into what happened at a company that was once worth $9 billion. It made Holmes a star. She was on front pages, in network newscasts, and then it turned out to be a complete bust, a total fraud. Rebecca is ABC News' Chief Business, Technology, and Economics Correspondent. I was very lucky to call her a colleague for a couple years at CBS News before she moved over to ABC, and I think you'll find the way she explains things and breaks them down very helpful. In our conversation, we talked about what inspired her to create the podcast, Holmes' legacy for women in Silicon Valley, how likely another Theranos-type fraud is, the lessons for investors in the media, does that Hulu series mirror real-life events like that green juice obsession in dancing. Was that for real? We'll talk about all that. But before we get to that, a reminder to subscribe and review this podcast. We appreciate your support. So let's get started here. Rebecca, I'm so glad to be talking to you. Moshe, it's great to see you again. And um, it's really exciting to see what you're building here too. So congratulations. So let's talk Theranos. And I want to get into what originally inspired you uh, and begin with uh, what inspired you to uh, tell the Elizabeth Holmes story and create the podcast? Uh, well, it started with a pitch. I was pitched Theranos many years ago now as a solution for ABC News viewers. I was working um, with Diane Sawyer on a world news investigation into exploding healthcare costs. We were looking at a number of different healthcare stories. One of them was a woman who was getting blood testing and she was going to a handful of different um, she had gone to one 
blood testing facility. And we looked into the fact that if she had gone to a different blood testing facility, basically a block away, she would have paid a completely different amount. And none of this was transparent at the time. So after this story, I'm pitched Theranos as a solution. I start looking into it and I can't find anybody independent to tell me that it works. And at the time, that wasn't some giant red flag, but it wasn't something that we shared with ABC News viewers as a solution. Um, from there, suddenly Elizabeth Holmes was being celebrated. She was all over the place. She was on all of these magazine covers, Forbes and Fortune and the 60 Minutes profile. And so this story that had sort of tangentially caught my eye was suddenly very much in focus in the mainstream. And I felt like there were all of these questions that had come up early on for me that still were not fully answered. Um, and I started looking around trying to understand how I might tell the story to ABC News. And it felt pretty early on like a really good story for a podcast. I had never done a narrative podcast, but I was a big fan of Serial um, and, and Sarah Koenig's work. And so I started thinking about how would I do this? And my producer, Taylor Dunn and I, would travel. And you know what this is like, Mosh. We would get stories for Good Morning America on the West Coast uh, at Apple or Google or Amazon or whatever the company was, Facebook. And every time we were out there, we would stop in Palo Alto or Los Angeles and meet with people who were connected to the Theranos story and interview them if they were up for an interview with our uh, sound equipment, with our, with our podcasting equipment. And so I was collecting the audio and sharing internally at ABC News that I was interested in doing something and a podcast. And when the charges came from the SEC and the Department of Justice, that really heightened interest because then it really felt like, okay, like this is this is significant. Um, and so I was putting the podcast together. One of the key elements for people who have listened to the podcast are the deposition tapes because we it's I asked many times for an interview with Elizabeth Holmes and she would never commit to one. So the only time we really have her on camera answering questions directly are these SEC deposition tapes. We finally got the deposition tapes, um, put the podcast together and the rest is now history. You, you were describing some moments there as she rose to prominence. Um, you know, take us back to when she was at her peak. She seems like she could do no wrong. She's the star. She's the next Steve Jobs. She's, you know, the, I forget the description. The, is it the first female entrepreneur or billionaire or first self-made? The first self-made. Yeah. She was, she was the youngest self-made female billionaire at one time. And all of this was, of course, on paper because of her company's valuation. Theranos at its height was valued at $9 billion. She owned half the company, so $4.5 billion. Um, that's all gone now, um, along with her company, Theranos. But at the moment that she was being celebrated, this is around 2014, 2015, her Theranos technology had made it into a handful of Walgreens, primarily in Arizona, um, one in California. You could walk into a Theranos wellness center in these places inside of Walgreens and get blood tests. And it was with this promise that a few drops of blood could run hundreds of tests. 
what came out at the trial, which was more recently, um, where she was found guilty on four counts of criminal fraud in January, is that at the very, very best, her technology, which again, she claimed could run hundreds of tests on just a few drops of blood, at its very best could run 12 tests at any given time. Um, and there's this moment in the deposition where she's asked directly by the SEC, how many tests can it run on a few drops of blood? And she says tens of tests. Um, so yeah, so it's just throughout that deposition, by the way, we counted how many times she obfuscates, whether it's I can't recall or I don't remember or various things. And it's over 600 times in that deposition. Uh, with the SEC. And then, of course, you have the trial, which just wrapped up earlier this year, and she was on the stand for seven days. So that was also its own fascinating thing, which we followed with the tr with our updated podcast. And you describe her technology, but in some cases, they weren't even using their That's own technology, right. right? Yeah. That was one of the big secrets, because they had taken these third-party machines from other pre-existing blood testing companies like Siemens, and they were either using just purely that machine or they were adapting the machine so that they could try to take smaller samples of blood and run them through those machines. And the, the so many people were getting inaccurate results. A number of those people were on the stand at the trial, a woman who thought she had HIV, a woman who thought she was miscarrying, a man who thought he had prostate cancer. And in his case, there were multiple Theranos tests that were run on his blood samples and they were all coming back. Like his chart looks like this because it just like wasn't clear at all uh, what the actual result was until he got an outside test, which then showed he did not have prostate cancer. I mean, very concerning details. I mean, this is stuff that, you know, people were getting bad information about their health, their own health. Did did it come out in the trial? And has she shown any remorse for the impact um, that that she had and her company had? The if you want to call it remorse, the biggest thing that came out of the trial was regret in many examples where a lot of the times at trial, defense would would come back to something that the government presented in its case and they would represent it as an error, not a fraud, not something where she knowingly made a, a, a misjudgment, but something where she made an accident and she would say, I regret it. If I could go back, I would change it. So that's what came out of the trial. But of course, you have the 12 jurors who, despite what she said, believe that she was guilty on four counts. Uh, the four counts where she was found guilty were involving investors. So the fraud perpetrated against the wire fraud involving investors where they did not find her guilty were on the counts involving patient fraud. But again, this isn't a uh, this wasn't a case about malpractice. This was a case about wire fraud. So to make the argument that there was wire fraud in the case of the patients is a lot harder legal obstacle than to make the case of wire fraud and conspiracy to commit wire fraud when it came to investors. Wait, wait, it's isn't fascinating. And by the way, I mean, part of this is, is listening to your podcast. Part of this was watching the Hulu uh, depiction of the podcast. And trying to get at the psychology of Elizabeth Holmes, you know, in the mm -hmm. trial, she tried to make herself the victim. And so your sense in having spent years now covering her and covering this whole story, 
was she deceiving herself? Was she being deceived? Where, where, where do you land right now when you try to get at what she knew, when she knew it, and, and how much control she really had over what was happening at Theranos? Yeah, I mean, that, <clears throat> that's, that's really the question. And I think one of the things I like about the Hulu series is that I think people walk away with a lot of different interpretations. I interviewed, um, you know, after the trial, we spoke to the jurors. And the jurors are a fascinating bunch because they're people who didn't know this story coming in, by and large. They Part of the weeding out process was, have you listened to the dropout? And if you had, you weren't a member of the jury. Um, but something that was fascinating, the feedback from many of them, was that they believed that she believed that her technology would eventually work, but they believed that she crossed the line knowing that it wasn't working the way she claimed that it was at the points that she did in order to obtain funding that would then keep the whole thing going. Um, and I, I, I've been thinking a lot about these stories in general and why people are drawn to them. And you'll have to forgive me. I was at, um, I, I was at a, an event last night and David Blaine was performing. He, he's, he's got a new show coming up on Nat Geo. And so he was there for that, but he also did a performance. And I was thinking to myself, why is it that crowds are fascinated by magic? And I think this is sort of the same thing. It's, we all want to understand it and get inside it. And everybody knows there's something there, but no one really knows exactly how it's done. And no matter how many times you see a magic trick done, you're still interested in seeing it until you've got it fully figured out. And I think these stories are that too. It, you, you have people at the heart who are enigmatic, fascinating, maybe they're cultural icons for a moment, and everyone's trying to get inside their head. And at the same time, they're trying to see and thinking of themselves, would I fall for it? And what do I need to know so that I don't fall for it in my life? Yeah, I, I mean, the other show uh, I've been watching recently is We Crashed, um, yes, on the rise and fall yes. of, uh, of, of Adam Newman and yeah. WeWork and you know, a 40 something billion dollar valuation and some of the smartest bankers, investors in the world and Jamie Dimon, et cetera, investing in this company. And then you watch the series and you're like, wait, how did everyone fall? And, you know, and in a different respect, completely the Anna Delvey story and inventing Anna. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're all and retrospective though. I mean, in the case of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, there are differentiators in terms of who invested. So you have the early money, which is the kind of friends and family money. There are people in Silicon Valley who are cutting her checks like Tim Draper, um, Larry Ellison, uh, Don Lucas. But as it gets deeper in, what you would traditionally see with a biotech company or a really high, high science type company, you would see venture capital that is highly specific coming in. So you'd see the venture capitalists who have that background. And by and large, they didn't get that kind of money. What they got was funding from the Walmart family, uh, the Waltons, funding from the DeVos family, funding from Rupert Murdoch, giant. I mean, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars in checks, but the, the sort of traditional betting process that you would see didn't happen. That said, there is a sort of FOMO that exists in investing where if 
my neighbor's doing it and so-and-so is doing it and so-and-so bet early on Uber or this or that and always can spot something, you start to see these trends where the money is all flowing in the same direction. And it's it doesn't mean that there's something bad going on there. And in some cases, people are betting on the things that everyone else is betting on because at a certain point, a big enough um, war chest of money can actually help you get over some of the hurdles that are hard to get over as a startup. That again, that does not guarantee success, but money is a hurdle for most companies in the early days and, and oftentimes continues to be. And to have that flexibility and especially have it from big names can help companies be successful, although it doesn't guarantee success. You know, what I found so interesting, and, and I didn't even realize this until uh, I was listening to it, she didn't really have a science background. She no. uh, dropped out of Stanford. Um, and by the way, we know a lot of tech entrepreneurs who dropped out of college and have gone into prominent things, but this was a very specific, to your point, a scientific thing. And yeah. so it's just so, uh, you know, so interesting to me in terms of your reporting. Were people just so convinced by her genius? Did they like the storyline? What, what was your sense as to why she was able to rack up these very prominent board members, investors, et cetera, given what was happening behind the curtain? Well, so one of the attorneys that I interviewed, Reed Catherine, who brought a civil suit um, against Elizabeth Holmes on behalf of investors, he talked about affinity fraud. And he also had dealt with a suit involving um, Bernie Madoff. And he said that there, he felt that there were a lot of similarities. And when I say affinity fraud, it's this idea, again, that if someone you know bets on someone or something and you trust that person, then you're not going to do the same degree of diligence as you might if no one you knew was investing. And we see this all the time at whether it's a, a really high level scam, like a Bernie Madoff scam or, or, or like Theranos, but we see it in the smaller sort of MLM world and, and that type of thing as well, where trust is built on relationships oftentimes more than on data and verification. And not everybody believed in this. Uh, Phyllis Gardner was one of the early people that I talked to. She's a professor at Stanford in the medical department, has spent years of her career working on some of the biggest scientific questions of our time. And that was one of her early points to Elizabeth Holmes, that this idea, what you're after, first of all, she didn't see... Professor Gardner didn't see it as as viable. But beyond that, it's like if you want to do something like this, then there's going to take years and years and years of your work. I sit down the hall from Nobel laureates and people who have dedicated decades to their work. The idea that you're going to drop out of school, put together millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars, and this fancy board of directors and somehow pull a rabbit out of the hat is laughable. Yeah, my other favorite skeptic, um, and and partially now he's my favorite because of William H. Macy's portrayal of him, oh. is, is Richard, Richard Hughes. Hughes. Though, yeah, though he didn't initially, his incentive was slightly different, right? It wasn't yeah. for the, yeah. Yeah, he, he was a, a very different um, character in the story. I think, to me, some of the most interesting are Tyler Schultz and Erica Chung, who 
we wouldn't even be having this conversation, perhaps, if it wasn't for the two of them. Tyler Schultz, of course, put his, so much uh, on line for this, his family, his relationship with his grandfather. And Erica Chung put her livelihood on the line. She was very fearful of what all of this was going to mean for her life, but she decided um, that it was the right thing to do. And I think that for me was one of the things that stood out the most at the trial because Elizabeth's attorneys throughout the trial really made this point that she was 19 years old. They really hammered this idea home. She's 19 years old. And of course she was 19 when she dropped out of Stanford and first started the company, but she ran the company for many years beyond that. And um, came into the trial in her late 30s. So her uh, the, the government in its final appeal said something along the lines of Erica Chung was in her early 20s when she did the right thing. You're trying to tell us that age is the decisive factor in knowing right from wrong. Erica Chung didn't need to be older in order to differentiate between right and wrong. Yeah, I was so curious about the moral compass um, and and but also just like uh, the way Amanda Seyfried also portrayed her is almost emotionless. Um, what what have you learned about, um, you know, because she's sort of this larger than life character, the the the, the black uh, clothing, the the lipstick. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and then, of course, in the series, the the green juice. And you got to I, I was curious <laughs> about the, the, the dancing, if that's a thing. Um, but um, Explain to me what you've learned about Elizabeth Holmes and um, her personality, her moral compass, her eth- her ethics. How how she approached all of this, um, and to what extent, watching that portrayal, do we get a a real glimpse at it? Well, look, I think Liz Merriweather, uh, the showrunner and creator of the Hulu series, and Amanda Seyfried did. I mean, they they both have blown me away in this process. But of course, there are things that can't be known. Um, we can't know exactly what was in Elizabeth or Sonny Belwani's head at a given time. And these are interpretations based on all of the evidence we have. I do think one of the fascinating pieces to this is that because of the trial, because of the claims Elizabeth Holmes made at the trial against Sonny Belwani, um, there were these claims of sexual assault, of assault, of aggressive behavior towards her claims, which Sonny Balwani firmly denied. But she was on the stand talking about this. And as a result of her testimony, we got a lot of text messages between the two. And it's a very intimate look at who they are, what their relationship was like. Of course, this is a relationship that began uh, when she was just out of school, um, still in high school and studying abroad. Um, on the Stanford program in um, in Beijing. And so to see the relationship, and by the way, he's almost 20 years older than she is. So we saw that to some extent. We could imagine that to some extent, what that might be like. But then to see these text messages where they're referring to each other by pet names, she calls him Tiger, he calls her Tigress. Um, they have this repeated prayer that they say to each other oftentimes. Um, they, they talk about praying um, at times. And then there's also just one thing I found fascinating. And this is in the first season of the dropout before the trial came out, but we saw a lot through the SEC depositions as well. There are very clear text messages about a breakdown inside of Walgreens, that things are not working out at Walgreens. And then you flash forward to 
days, weeks after these text exchanges are sent and Elizabeth Holmes is on stage at a Forbes conference or a Fortune conference. And she's literally saying we're going to be in every home in the next you know, year, years. It, the, the contrast between what's happening behind the scenes versus what we are being fed on main stages is two different, completely two different universes. Um, and I think, you know, it certainly raises these questions about faking it till you make it. I think for me as a journalist, one of the most important lessons in all of it is obviously to follow your instincts and keep asking questions. But I think that we have to remember that when people put forth audacious goals, and that is essentially what Elizabeth Holmes did. She said she was going to change blood testing and make the world a better place. Regardless of how audacious the goal is, it does not undermine fundamentally the goal to ask critical questions about how you're going to get there. And I think that too often we find ourselves in these places where people who say that they have audacious goals are quick to say that a journalist asking critical questions doesn't want the goal when the objective should be truth in the pursuit of it. I, I very eloquently said, and that, that was getting me to the final part here, which is how has the home story and what happened at Theranos impacted uh, the investor community, VCs, and how they scrutinize these types of companies? And obviously one concern and I think it was alluded to in the in the um, in both your podcast and the show itself was the impact, particularly on female entrepreneurs, uh, that they already have a difficult enough time um, in in this world, and that her what her impact could be on that. Yeah. So there there has been a lot of reporting on this, and I've talked to a handful of founders, female founders, who who've talked about this. That getting over that obstacle, the sort of uh, you know, Elizabeth Holmes lied. So now I can't trust women or whatever. Um, one, one of the things I think is kind of interesting about that point is that Silicon Valley is very, very quick to say she is an outlier. She is not one of us. So I say to that, well, if she's not one of you and she's a total outlier, then why paint anybody else with that brush? Why, why consider her a distinguishing factor? when you look at other possible entrepreneurs. So who knows? The, the point is, there are definitely obstacles. We know that this is the case when you look at the amount of venture funding that goes to females versus males. It's a really small portion. Um, I hope that this will only cause investors to increase their scrutiny across the board and that fundamentally investors will look for good ideas and bright people and passionate people and people who will work very hard at the same time. I hope that people will continue to ask questions and push really brilliant, smart, capable people to refine and to do great work and to not cut corners so that it is to the benefit of society as a whole when they come up with these game-changing ideas. Is, is there an ask though for more transparency? Uh, on the part of startups, if you're if you startup these days, are you facing more questions than you once did due to this? Mm, I don't I don't know about that. I think that biotech is its own world because there are so many degrees, and it's a very different world. There's there's regulatory hurdles. There's a lot more. 
that has to be overcome. And the people, again, who deal in that space are most of them are are PhDs and have these giant science backgrounds themselves. So when they look at a company like Theranos, they know exactly what they're looking for. Some of the things, for example, that the investors could have looked for with Theranos, they could have called some of the pharma companies that there were these claims that it had been vetted by you know, 10 of the 15 largest pharma companies and, and given their stamp of approval, essentially. And so investors could have called and said, uh, you know, is this true? Is this real? And some of the investors might have, but the ones who invested by and large didn't do that. Um, I think in the long run, it's a reminder to ask questions, to be skeptical. And again, to that point earlier, even when the goal is one we all want to see, it's still the right thing to ask the critical questions so that we get there and we get there honestly. And you may have just answered it, but as a journalist, how has covering this story changed you? Um, you know, like I remember uh, Holmes <laughs> coming through the CBS This Morning set and everyone being like, oh yeah. my God, you're doing amazing things. And she was doing the rounds and she was on the cover of the magazines. Um, has the media learned a lesson here? And, and if not the media, you as a journalist, what lessons have you learned as you continue to report on, on companies, startups, CEOs, that whole world? Um, I will speak to myself more. I, I think for me, it is just a reminder to keep on the stories that excite me, that keep me up at night. When I first was interested in this story, it didn't have the degree of interest that it has today. And there were a lot of other things that were going on at the time, um, but it's just a reminder to me to keep at these stories, the ones that keep me up at night. I also personally just loved the experience of doing it as a podcast, having this totally blank canvas and saying, let's just see, I'm going to just try and do this and see what happens. I didn't have expectations of any of the things that have come. I just really wanted to see what would happen if I tried something completely new. So I encourage other journalists who are thinking about how they want to tell a story to try new formats. Um, and, and also to acknowledge that I tried a lot of new formats before this. I, I had another podcast that was sort of a, an interview style podcast. I did a lot of stuff uh, on the World Wide web that didn't really ever take off, but it was those years of experience of testing and experimenting that got me to a point where I could even conceive of how might I do Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes as a podcast. The green juice thing, real or Hollywood <laughs> Hollywood thing? Mm. I mean, that's what everybody told us. Um, the the episode, I think it's the the third episode of of the Hulu series. It's almost exactly what the episode was for us. Kevin Hunter, who was the um, consultant who was vetting the uh, vetting Theranos on behalf of Walgreens, talked all about those meetings, the fact that um, he was walked to the bathroom by Sonny Belwani. They presented this flag, which supposedly was in the battlefield in Afghanistan. Um, she had green juice. They were in the back of the sushi restaurant. And uh, he drove his um, Lamborghini Veni Vidi Vici to the restaurant. I mean, everything, a lot of it does reflect our reporting in the podcast. And um, there was a lot of green juice. And, and the so dancing? Cheers. And the dancing? The dancing, we don't have, I mean, the dancing is just a really fun addition to all of this. 
So, so bottom line, if you're watching the Hulu series, 90% hewing to reality, 95%. I mean, I can't put a number on it because I like to be exact when I put numbers on anything, but what I can say is that it, there are so many of one of the things I really focused on with the podcast was this idea of scenes, taking our listener into various moments as they happened, as the sources that we interviewed recall them happening. And what was really fun for me um, as part of the Hulu series and working with Liz Merriweather and the team was to see those things brought to life because I had the vision in my head based on the interviews and sometimes even based on being in the experience. I was at Theranos. I, I visited their headquarters a couple of times. I was kicked off the campus a handful of times by, by the bodyguards who stand in the, in the front entryway. But it was very cool to see things brought to life because they were how I envisioned them. And by the way, on the, on the music thing, music is very important in this show. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but I'm a big, I feel like music is so important. I always sort of have music in my head, whether it's actually playing on Spotify or I'm just thinking it. Um, most of the time, if I'm thinking it, it's in Kanto because it's my three-year-old daughter's favorite movie right now. Um, but her, there, there is this moment that a handful of people recounted to us uh, who were there who said she would drive up to work and have like really loud music playing in her car and, you know, would just kind of like bop around in her car. So that's, that, you know, has a grain of the, the dancing to it. It's, it's, it's fascinating because um, the, the WeWork uh, storyline is, is similar that he would have, he would have a song playing as he walked in the office. Though so I think in the series they make it a Katy Perry song, and I looked at this. Apparently, it was a biggie, uh, juicy. Uh, is what uh, oh. Adam Newman liked to play in the office. Yeah, <laughs> you know, music can really pump you up. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not going to knock music. Yeah. No, no, no. We're not going to let them bring down music <laughs> seriously um, for us. Um, Rebecca, I'm so happy for you. Thanks, Mosh. Um, and find this fascinating question. Um, What's next? Is there a storyline you're looking into? Is there a new season of The Dropout beyond um, Elizabeth Holmes that you're looking? Or is there more to this story uh, that you haven't quite um, uncovered? Well, look, I think that when sentencing happens, it will be an interesting time in September. Her sentencing, you mentioned this, but it's in September and it comes after Sonny Balwani's trial is over. And I am working on a handful of other investigations. The world is unfortunately filled with fraud. Um, and I am always going to be curious about it and always asking questions and wherever they lead me is what you guys will get to hear about in the future. Well, I look forward to what's next and uh, appreciate you uh, spending time. And um, as I mentioned at the top, uh, the Dropout podcast is available wherever you get your podcast. So check it out. And uh, Rebecca, thank you. Mosh, thank you so much for your interest. And again, congratulations. I'm loving everything you're building and uh, big longtime listener, first time caller enjoying it so much. Our thanks to Rebecca Jarvis for her insight. Please check out her podcast series, The Dropout, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, the Hulu series by the same name, The Dropout. You can also find her reporting over at ABC News, uh, whether it be abcnews.com or any of their regular broadcasts. And of course, you can read more about this conversation in the Mo News newsletter over at monews.bulletin.com. And remember to follow at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H for all your news needs on Instagram. A reminder to subscribe and review this podcast wherever you're listening to us right now. We plan to continue to bring you regular conversations with perspective from experts, leaders, and journalists involved in some of the biggest news stories around the world.
See everyone back here soon.